0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to How I Got Greenlit, a weekly podcast about pursuing your passions in the creative arts and beyond. Our guest this week is writer, director, and friend of the show, Angie Wong. Her credits include the film MDMA, an autobiographical 80s crime drama starring Annie Q and Francesca Eastwood from Shout Factory, She also founded GROW, a global resiliency outreach work program, which provides innovative programs to at-risk youth and fosters emotional resiliency and broadens life perspectives. She talks about that during the interview. Quick shout out to new and longtime Instagram friends, Duan Fox, JRAP, and the great film club out of LA. Thanks for being a part of our Instagram and supporting the show. And now, the always entertaining Angie Wong.
2: All right. Well, we're here with uh, Angie Wong. Thank you for joining us.
3: My pleasure.
2: And uh, we so so you and I met at the Nine One Nine Festival, right? Yeah,
3: five years ago now.
2: Oh God, is it I really know. that long? Jesus I know. Christ. Basically, so Nine One Nine was in Chapel or is in Chapel Hill. It's a film festival in uh, near the campus uh, at Chapel Hill, and it's um, we were we were. You know, both had movies out back then, and and they invited us to to screen them, and we did a little. I think we did like a roundtable talk too, right?
3: We did, we did, we did a panel. We did a bunch yeah. of stuff. We packed a lot in.
2: Yeah, it was a fun time, and Claudia was our host. Uh, and it was like
3: camp for film for grown up filmmakers.
2: Well, it was just a nice feeling because I think for indie directors, you're very much in your own little rabbit hole, right? You have your crew and your creative collaborators. But as far as a larger world or community or shared experience or any of that, you're sort of in a vacuum. So when you go to a film festival, it is this immediate feeling like, oh, you... I saw your film and I like yeah. your film. And how did you get that shot? And oh my yeah. God. And it's so uh, collegial and just f- really fun that um, th- a group of us ended up going out drinking and uh, ended up. And since it's a college town, there's a lot of fun bars and bands and whatever. And ended up at three in the morning at the Waffle House. <laughs> and as and one does was- in the
0: South. That's yes. right,
2: and there was this very intoxicated woman who was having just the time of her life.
3: A lovely young woman named Pumpkin.
2: And it was Pumpkin, <laughs> and uh, I'll ask uh, I'll ask our legal department if I can share some of those videos, but I think I think they're free they're free range. So. Uh, Pumpkin came over to the table and was making friends, and it was just great.
3: By making friends, he means she was like poured all over Alex's fucking lap.
2: She fell on my lap, and <laughs> there was an implication that she would be available for, uh, for a later future opinions. shows, future, future uh, shows. just uh, you know a one on one late say. night. A we one-on-one. were
3: we were there with Chris, right, and you know mm-hmm. he had was coming off the heels of Tangerine. So we're like, dude, this is your next fucking film. This is your next fucking film. So I'm like drunkenly fumbling around with my phone trying to film her. I look over. Chris is like, I'm on it. I'm on it. He's already got our track. So
2: I'm going to embarrass myself. How do you say Chris's last name? Bergok. Bergok. So so Chris Bergok is actually – you know, a really respected writer. He did the Florida Project. He did yeah. Tangerine. Uh, he 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 collaborates quite often with uh, the director Sean Baker. Right. Um, and right. Uh, he had come. I think he was a judge. He was.
3: He
1: was, he was some
2: kind of senior guest from us. He was. I, he, he might have like the running hot the shit panel. Guest. Yeah, he was the hot chick. He, he was, was the, the get. Hot shit yeah. He was the get. He was. And we were we were the last act. We were like, Ooh, uh, scrappy indie darlings. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and it's gone on to do, uh, a lot of cool stuff, red rocket and whatever. Right. And, um, and it was just a night, it was just one of those great nights and we all, you know, stayed friends after and whatever, which I, uh, I, I, love, I, it it's just so hard to meet real people in this business. I mean, there's a lot of what I call show friends, yeah, you know, you know the old saying like it's love not, you it's, mean it yeah, yeah it's not show friends it's show business and show yeah. friends are kind of eh, your network you're you know right. your collect- maybe maybe you might work with them maybe they'll help you get a pitch maybe whatever oh but- my god let angie talk
0: <laughs> <laughs> jesus god how long it's not that uh, come on please all right sorry I'm kidding.
2: Angie, tell us your life story. I'm gonna go. uh, I'm gonna
3: go rethink my
0: my life choices. Sorry, I had to. I had to stop that monologue. It would have never ended.
3: I will say that Alex (laughs) definitely hit on something that is that is close to my heart, which is um, you know, one of the things that I love about filmmaking is getting to meet real people who put their stupid enough or brave enough or whatever, creative (laughs) enough, whatever you want to fucking say, to put. A piece of their heart up on the screen right so i think when you when you stumble across those people and you really find that resonance and that like like alex was saying that that collegial kind of feel you hold on to it you know that's what i've learned at this stage in my life too like when i when i find something real i fucking hold on to it um so
0: so start i think the you know the first thing we do is start um at the beginning so i mean to be involved with a film festival which if anyone knows anything about film festivals that is not a fun like you're doing that uh it's not for fun it's it's a hard job it's a hard thing to do so you're on uh, a circuit
3: you're definitely on a circuit i actually think it's fun but it also there's no fucking money you know i mean they were they were kind enough to put us up and in a nice place too. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, we fly it on our own dime and we do it because, you know, I think as filmmakers, it's just your dream to connect with an audience. Right. You know, like, like Alex was saying, you work in a fucking vacuum and with your editor for for a long ass time, you know, I think people don't really realize it's, you know, you're married to this thing when you're the director. And then like, like we were, we wrote it also, you know, so this Mm -hmm. is like really our baby it's a and whole also process. based
2: on on our real lives too we yeah. that's what we shared too
3: that's right that's uh, right kind yeah, of a was-
2: fictionalized sexed up version of our own experiences that's um, right
3: that's right
2: and it yeah i mean it's it's somebody asked me actually it was my therapist he said is it w- would you rather make a lot of money or, or get
3: fucked up the ass oh no sorry <laughs> It's basically kind of what it's you, like.
2: that's how you make a lot of money. <laughs> um, make a lot of no, money
3: or what? Sorry. I, uh, I
2: or uh be creatively validated. You know, Ooh, like do yeah. you do you want people to see your work versus making a ton of money doing this job?
3: And what did you say?
2: I said yes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, yeah, well, I've certainly chosen the latter. <laughs> <laughs> not have, the money wait, is not of, flowing in.
0: Wait, Angie, in which scenario? The fuck's the answer the are being validated? I'm not sure where we are in this conversation now. Uh,
3: no, being validated. I, I feel like, uh, yeah, being validated. Um And that looks like so many different things. So I think when I was reading through the email, your act one is basically like how did you don't belong to filmmaking, right? Yeah, your
2: origin story is film right. always been a part of your family or your, yeah. did your parents turn you on? Like in my case, it was my dad took me to the theater. That was our bonding experience.
3: That was me and my dad too. You know, I mean, I, if you watch my movie and all of you should, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I grew it's up, called, well, wait, mom, it's called
2: MD, hold on. It's called MDMA. Yeah, MDMA.
3: It's called MDMA. It's out on, it played on Showtime for a long time, but I think it's passed. Uh, it's on Hulu, and uh, Amazon and iTunes and all this and voodoo and who and um, you know all the all the kind of like standard streaming platforms.
2: Yeah, you're on but Shout Factory, which is a pretty aggressive indie distributor. Yes. They get out there. Yes. and uh, it was uh, loosely based on your education, right? You, you didn't go to film school. you went you were a chemist.
3: Well, I, I was I was pre-med, and pre-med. Um, I decided that it would be a great idea to kick down the doors of organic chemistry and mix up my own 3,4-methyl-dioxymethylamphetamine and um, dealt ecstasy during the 80s. So, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> you didn't just deal it. You actually made it. You I made you, it. You knew how to make it. In real
3: life, in real life, I had um, definitely help, but... When I started to embark upon this process of making this a public thing, I remember the wife of the guy who helped me was like, bitch, don't fucking use my husband's name. Like, I don't want to fucking hear his name coming off your lips. So I was like, okay, it plays better anyway, <laughs> if I did it all by myself. <laughs> right, I don't,
2: I don't need his rights, I'll just make up a character. That's right, right.
3: that's right. Um, so, um, you know, film, was film always, a, yes, film was always a great um, portal in my life, you know, cause it definitely, Ooh, that's I had a,
0: it's a good word.
3: A, yeah. It was, you know, a, a fairly dark childhood. You know, my father w- worked at a restaurant in real life and, um, you know, would, would stay out until the wee hours of the morning. And, uh, my mom left when I was like seven, like a
2: fam, like a family business. Like he had to be first in last out kind of level of work.
3: No, not then yet. Not then. It was just mostly because he wanted to go out drinking. Oh. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> You know, he liked to go out and party afterwards. Which, right. looking back, you know, from the vantage point of a, a grown woman, I'm like, oh, you know, I think he he was dealing with his own issues of anxiety and depression, probably some addiction, self medicating, self medicating yeah. for sure. Because I think, and that's
2: and that's that. Now you now you're a parent, you see it yes, through that lens. I yeah. do, I do. But uh-huh.
3: it's taken a lot for me to get to this point. Um, you know, where I see him as a as a flawed human being who is still my template for love, whom I adore, but you know, and, and not as like the person who like fucking robbed me of the childhood that I was entitled right. to. Right.
2: We're all parents on this, on this call. And uh, the notion of uh, uh, when you have a child, you instantly look at yourself through a different lens. You do. You, you have to do a self inventory, but then also that's part of the process is, I think most people have some kind of childhood trauma, however great or small, yeah. but, uh, they have issues with their parents. Right. And right. when you have a kid, uh, you're forced to almost empathize. Like, you know, this shit is hard. Like when parenting hard. gets hard, which is, it yeah. is, uh, yeah. you go, Oh, I'm starting to see a new light on this guy, this girl. I mean, I'm not maybe entirely okay with the way they behaved, but, I understand it like a like a director understands yeah. a character, right? You empathize. It's a different
3: perspective. I think mm-hmm. it 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 affords an opportunity to go deeper and and you know carve out some deeper compassion, some deeper empathy, forgiveness, right? let it yeah. go,
2: move on. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so I think now so.
3: instead of you know focusing on the parts of my father that caused me a great deal of pain when I was young, because I was like, why are am I not good enough for you? Why why? Like, right. Am I not enough for you to fucking want to come home from work, right?
2: Right. Um, which
3: set me up for many, 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 many years of therapy. But um,
2: and I many think, men who didn't quite pay attention to you, right? Like that's yeah. That, that's many men I who did. I took
3: hostage and then blamed for being who they were. <laughs> so, which is yeah, <laughs> highly Fine. enlightened.
0: Sounds like you've worked through some things. Mm.
3: I have, I have. I've been forced to. I kind of did it with a gun to my head, um, but. You know, I had the unique experience of of doing this movie and revisiting a part of my life when my daughter was just about that age. So I think, I mean, it's a fairly unique set of circumstances, right? right? So there was a lot going on. And, you know, my love of movies really started when I was a little girl, right? Because my father, who was, you know, largely absent, and he did the very best he could. I will say that he did the very best he could, but it wasn't fucking good enough. (laughs) um (laughs) so but what he what he did do was he was off on mondays and tuesdays and on tuesday night come hell or high water it was our fucking movie night So sometimes he took me to what just to see like wildly inappropriate things he took me to fucking see mandingo when i was like fucking nine years old and i was like oh my god what is this yeah i had to look up half the words they were, they were like <laughs> talking in this like like deep southern drawl so i'd, I'd be like what's a hoa and i'd have to <laughs> and, and then, <laughs> i didn't know what a lot of this stuff was that i was seeing
1: however mm-hmm.
3: i did have my father next to me i did hold his hand and we watched movies and sometimes we would talk about them yes so and it did like i was saying before Film, film and TV were like these magical portals for me, right Because like we didn't have any fucking money, we didn't travel, we didn't go on vacation. but wow, I got to travel through the movies. I got to in some ways be reparented by the movies. I got to see just a, a, a different reality, a different perspective. you know I got to see a lot of like different timelines, you know like maybe my life could do this, maybe my life could do this, maybe my life could do that. And it really was brought to life by, by the power of the cinema, right? Like I, I fucking still live for that moment when I walk into the theater and the lights go dark and I'm like... I, I go into every movie go, like just hoping to fucking fall in love. Just wanting to fucking love yes, every minute Yes, rooting of it, right? for the
2: filmmaker. Like, yes. I hope you yes. pull it off because I want to go on a cool journey with you,
3: right? I, I have to say, the movie that I... The, probably the, the one that I've fallen in love with the, the deepest and the hardest and the fastest recently was Dune. I fucking love that movie. I've seen it like a thousand times. There's something happening to me.
0: There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it.
1: What did you see? Oh. There's a crusade coming.
3: It made me rediscover that love of cinema for me, you know, because I think there's a lot of stuff out there that that maybe I don't really resonate with or whatever. I don't want to, I don't want to diss other people's work, but um, I just really felt like there was a lot of love put into this movie and I just so respected the craftsmanship of it all. And, you know, just how much work and time and effort and, and yeah. Denis
2: Villeneuve. Yeah. yeah. Love him. And an indie guy that, Just got bigger budgets, but didn't really lose his sort of handcrafted uh, aesthetic, it seems. Yeah, yeah. I will say this, uh, and I have seen it a few times, I love it as well, Uh, made a point to see it on IMAX, and it lowered me
3: see I, I am so i cried because i couldn't see it in the movie theater because it was during the pandemic and i had taken my kid because i was like we can't stay in hollywood during this um so we like the beat zombies it to, will get us yeah pretty much um so hmm. we beat it to mount shasta where we lived in the middle of the woods for like a good 18 months and it came out during that time so i saw it first on hbo max and I remember being like, I could go home and see it. I could drive home to LA. It's a nine hour drive. <laughs>
2: um,
3: and then by the time I made it back, it wasn't in the movie theater. And I, I like, I have a good friend, actually, the brother of the guy whose house I'm in, um, Roger was in it and, you know, did all the action for it and ha- and uh, in, in Dune 2 gets to play an arc. But nice. I remember calling and being like, I will fucking suck anyone's dick to be able to get <laughs> on set or. <laughs> So I, I've launched my campaign to beg to go to the screening of Dune too. So we'll see. We'll it's see. a ma-
0: it's a massive movie too. I mean, production yeah. wise. Yeah.
2: I bet I'll bet you come I think it's coming out Thanksgiving or Christmas this year. I bet It's coming do out it.
3: earlier because Blade has such oh, issues that it's taking that slot. Yeah, they move the window. So I'm Great. like
2: ah, ah. I'll bet they'll do like a, a re theatrical re-release of the first one they pro- sort of Yeah, way. they probably
3: and I will. am fucking so bad. Yeah. I like
2: so I want there. I want the double fe- I'll go to the freaking IMAX double feature for the 4-hour extravaganza for sure. Oh fuck yeah. Absolutely.
3: Oh, it'll be like six hours. I can't, I like, I can't even let, that's so exciting to me. My, my whole system is like flooded with, <laughs> I'm so excited. So yeah, there's so many endorphins. things. I
2: mean, as you'll see, we, we have a very loose structure. And we kind of like to, to roam. So I wanted to go back to something that you said about critique, which I, I find that it changed me. So, uh, and you're a pretty acid tongue sometimes when we, when we get into it. Uh, yeah. but, um, Once I made a film myself, once I directed a film, and like you said, put in the time, put in the heart, put in the truth, put in the emotion, whatever, um, I don't look at films the same. And more importantly, I don't critique uh, films. I, I mean, I do. I'll have an opinion if I like it or not. Right. But I I think it was the jealousness of, like, well, why did that son of a bitch get to direct and I didn't? That, totally. That was sort of I was eaten
3: up with envy. I was, was eaten up like, with resentment.
2: It was pettiness that was sort of fueling yeah. the, like, that movie sucked and who gave them money and what, what the, the fuck? fuck? Yeah. Which was really just what about me or why not me?
3: It was about my ego. Yeah. yeah. And so when I ego. see
2: movies now, there's, there's good movies and bad. That part hasn't changed. I've changed. You've changed. I think it changes you uh, that you have, again, empathy. It's almost like parenting, right? You go through that
3: experience. I find that making a movie is a lot like making a child in that you have to love that thing man because there are going to be times when you are fucking pushed to the limits and tried like nothing else and you've got I thought to we're love gonna it. say
2: it was fun and then it was hell after <laughs> it's fun for five <laughs> minutes then then actually doing it fucking sucks it's
3: um, it, you know what and it's a labor of love you know yeah. i think that we don't i mean for people like you i mean we did not make our movies for money obviously no. I mean, I I, I did it because I loved it. I also felt compelled to do it. I also felt like at some point I didn't feel like I had a choice. Like I felt like this, I had to. It's fucking gotta, do it.
2: yeah, yeah. And and I, and I, I heard I, you I say would, that, Alex. Yeah, we talked about that. Ryan and I. Ryan was the producer on. Uh, he, they didn't fly him out, but he was my collaborator on that film. As Were you, you on the so, panel?
3: Were you on the panel? No, that we did. No, oh, no, we
2: did. Here's what happened. Uh, he didn't come to nine one nine. You introduced our film to a screening in LA yeah. later. You right. were our you became our moderator for moderator. our panel. That's, right. that's right. Yeah, that was a fun night. That
3: was a fun night.
2: But it's the notion that uh you know, it's it it starts in your head, it's a genesis of an idea. It's as you said, it's a story that's inside you that's got to get out, right? Yeah. So, unfortunately, and I, there's a great quote going around the web from Orson Welles. It's like, unfortunately we're not novelists and we can't just write it and like be done with it. We need to recruit like 50 strangers to to make it with us and all this and get money and the harder road clearly. But it was the notion that as it was like, I had an idea and then I told Ryan and then Ryan joined this like cult that we're starting. And then we got another person and another person and another person. And we were like, that's kind of like that shot from uh, Last Temptation of Christ where he's walking in the desert and then all of a sudden there's two guys with him and then it dissolves and there's four guys with him and then all the yeah. apostles are with him, right? Yeah. And we're like starting a movement. And in this case, it's a film. And uh, at a certain point in that process, and look, a lot of those stories end with, and then we couldn't get it done, the right. end. Right, right. And that's what I kept reminding myself and him and others, look, this is hard, but we keep making it through the next obstacle towards yeah. completion, you know, a lot yeah. of the, we're fall; they're falling away. I said it was a pyramid and we keep getting to the next stop and the next, you know, you just
3: trade in one set of issues for the next, I think. Correct. The evolution Bigger, harder, yeah. more yeah. budget,
2: more like, and yeah. I
3: feel like it's, you know, the image that always comes to my mind is like, I'm trying to push this fucking freight train uphill and I'm pushing and pushing and it's not budging. And then I'm like, Hey you, Hey you, and, all, and then, so like, it's a bunch of us then, it's like a little village trying to push this fucking freight train up a hill. And then all of a sudden you jump on board because you're like, we're on a and runaway then it, freight right. train.
2: And then so, it gets yeah. a life of its own. It does. When it becomes real for that group of collaborators, and that could be anybody from a lawyer to an investor to a gaffer to a whatever, yeah. when it's real in all their minds and they take some kind of ownership, maybe not as personal as yours, but they find their own piece of it. Yeah. It takes on its own inertia. It It goes from a pushing it up a hill to it pushes you. No, you got to jump
3: on board because you're like you got to jump on board. It has a momentum,
2: and that may take years.
3: It can take a long ass fucking time,
2: (laughs) right? And then you know, like any long you know uh, courtship, uh, it's over too fast. You know, we shot in like three weeks. You know, I know you shot maybe like four, three, four. Yeah, twenty-one days. um, Yeah, and so, um, but it it does have very uh, shared aspects of that. The other other thing I would say when uh, our shared thing is I noticed, because some of the truth, I mean, there's a lot of truth in the the film, but one of the main elements is sort of divorce. Like it's like the breaking up of a relationship, and it's very much fueled by my own experience. And when the movie was completed – I had a catharsis for those emotions. Like I yeah. let that part of my life go.
3: Yeah, it was yeah.
2: a very expensive and long, many it's a long hours ass fucking to,
3: therapeutic session. Yeah. Right, but did and you do
2: you feel like some of the themes in the film?
3: I do. Like at, I do. You had
2: a catharsis, a you personal know, catharsis.
3: For me, um, like I said, it was a very unique situation where my daughter was the same age as I was in the movie. Right. And I think for me, for me, you know, I went through all these different iterations of my life and I found myself living, um, I was like, you know, this well-heeled soccer mom living in this like really upper classy kind of neighborhood that I felt very, um, distanced from because I I just didn't feel like I belonged. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the best analogy that I've come up with is, uh, you know, I'm in recovery and I went to, I went to treatment in Malibu. And I remember I, um, I bought a pair of jeans from Fred Siegel because I was like, gotta have those jeans. And they were like cut straight up and down. They're made for like a fucking like, you know, six foot tall blonde girl with no hips, right? And I am a short Chinese girl with some ass and legs. So I would like squeeze my fucking ass and legs into these jeans and I could walk around in them, but I couldn't really breathe. And they would like squish my ass and like (laughs) they just didn't feel right. And I felt like that was a good parable for my life. I felt my life was like that. I felt like I was... I felt like I was masquerading. I mm-hmm. also because I was around all these like bright, shiny new people, I put that angry 18-year-old volatile, chaotic girl into a box and I was like, shut the fuck up, you don't get a voice. Be quiet. Um, mm-hmm. and what I found was it's really necessary to I mean like the shamans call it a soul retrieval, shrinks call it, you know, inner child work, whatever you call it, I Self-parenting. think it is very real that you have to sort of own those pieces of yourself and love them again and find compassion for yourself and incorporate that back into yourself. So this was a really, it was a way to begin that process because it took a lot. You know, my daughter, Alex, I've shared with you, you know, my daughter has seen challenges. Definitely. She went through a period of like um, being really anxious and depressed and um, to the point of suicidality. um, It was pretty brutal. And I think that that, and then we're both, we're both in recovery. She's, you know, she's a recovering addict also. And, um, there was a lot of pain and the more I denied it, the more it persisted, the more you resist, the more it persists. Right. So the way that I feel like, um, these generations of trauma showed up was in me. And then I I telegraphed that to my daughter, right. She inherited that she inherited anxiety and depression, PTSD, Mm -hmm self-loathing fucking addiction she had she she comes by it honestly right so um i've gotten her permission to share this but I, and i've shared it with you alex i think yeah I, It came to a point where it was it was right on the heels of us um playing it at 919 my daughter had fallen in love with a class of drug that will take your life like in a heartbeat she loved fentanyl the opiates right and i kind of was in denial about that i thought she was just i thought she was just doing cocaine which i was like that's fine um because i was just youthful
2: experimentation yeah yeah
3: yeah but i remember this is like maybe a month after we played that film festival i remember for whatever reason thinking like i'm gonna put the brakes on my drinking for a little bit because like i'm drinking a lot <laughs> and it's not you know I, and it's not doing me that many favors right I'm not able to show up as the best version of myself.
2: And you're so, modeling a certain lifestyle. I like was still see,
3: completely modeling. They a certain see way. it. Yeah. They see
2: it all. They yes. pick up everything. And yeah. you know,
3: my movie, my daughter's like, who the fuck are you to say shit to me? Right. You're a fucking drug dealer. What <laughs> the fuck? You know, you have no room to talk. And I was like, yeah, maybe right. I don't. So I found her in her room. Odid. Um, she was uh, like blue lipped. Ash and white, not breathing. Right. And, um, my little voice started screaming in my head, like, breathe for her. You got to breathe for her. Like I remember hearing, breathe for her, breathe for her. And I, um, I'm not proud to say that I've never taken a CPR class, but I just knew what to do. You know, I think when you're a parent, especially like maybe all the fucking subconscious images of, you know, CPR flooded in, I'm not really sure, but I remember I somehow lifted her off the bed and, um, I, I put her head back and I pinched her nose and I started breathing and I remembered like, you know, you gotta you know, I came back up for air for a second and her lips were pink again from blue. And then testimony to the then nineteen year old body, her eyes flew open and she was like, You're so fucking loud, mom and I was like, I oh. Beat the living shit out of you, you fucking uh, little uh, rat, uh, fucking! But the uh, the real thing that happened, and I, I like, I don't pretend to be some weird mystic or whatever. But this is this is just exactly what I experienced. So when I was working on her, I remember for a second I did not feel like I was in her room. It, I didn't feel like I was in the room. I felt like I was standing next to her grave. Like I I have a very vivid memory of like. Not only standing next to the grave, but I remember like wind hitting me and like my body doing this thing. And then the next second, I was tossing up this baby who I believe is my not yet conceived granddaughter. So for me, I was like, I felt like the universe just cracked me open like a fucking eggshell. And I was like, fuck. Um, it took me a while to unpack that, you know, I had to get her into treatment, I had to, you know, do all these different things. I was like, Alright, I really need to address my sobriety, because I had been in and out, in and out, in and out of sobriety, right? Committing, not committing, you know, it's like, oh, and so I unpacked it. And I was like, this is a really powerful inflection point. Right? Like, this is like, okay, Ange, like, you either go to your personal apocalypse, and I got to tell you, like, I, I would not be here if my kid weren't here. or you go to your personal nirvana, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to just take my life down to the studs. Mm
2: -hmm. I had to take it down
3: to the studs. That's a
0: good term for it.
3: I had to look at everything and I would had to, you know what I mean? I had to change a lot of shit. And part of that was reincorporating that 18-year-old girl, that angry little girl who I had no compassion for, who I just thought was like a bad fucking damaged piece of shit and give her a little loving. You know, and kind of invite her back into my heart, so to speak. And I think, I think to the right. extent that you can develop self compassion, that, that telegraphs to the world, right? Because you, you can't really show up as a truly compassionate being if you fucking hate yourself. It's just, it's just you can't uh, yeah. do it.
2: Yeah. It's, it's uh, you can't fake it.
3: No, you can't. Yeah. So I think that making that film was a first step on that journey. You know, and then a number, it's like, it's the, the first domino, right? So then the dominoes go, blah, 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 blah. and um, it started me, it's, it, it gave me not, not so much the courage because I didn't have a choice at that point. It was like, just for my survival, for my kids' survival, I had to do, de- I had to do that deeply introspective work that is horrifying and really excruciating and, um, but but also informs this work you know what I mean like it also informs it informs this work because I feel like the best art doesn't necessarily just come from here it comes from here right and to the extent that you can clean this shit out and channel that whatever this is and it can come through you and you can share it Mm -hmm. with the world I think that's like the highest calling for an artist you know especially at this time in our fucking collective it's such a shitty time it's so dark it's so heavy Mm -hmm. and I feel like it's our highest calling as artists to be able to model a way through the dark, you know, or to give a platform to be able to speak from and to say, like, this is how you move through the dark. So this, this, is, this is my story. This is, this is you know, a, a depiction of it.
0: At this point, we'd like to stop and reminisce. I'd like to introduce a clip from Rosemead Hart from season one, where she mentions combining her skill with the law and her interest in art and film. Take it away, Rose.
1: I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer um, because it suits my skill set. It has a lot to do with reading and writing and being persuasive and analyzing and solving problems. So these are all the things that I find super fun. Um, And then as a young person, I also acted. So I acted professionally Uh as a young person and then I got recruited in college to take a, a BFA. But I knew that that was never the life for me, right? Especially as a young woman, in the 80s, like, there wasn't a lot of, uh, like, amazing opportunities. And as an actor, you have to A, look for work all the time, which is not for me, B, uh, stand where you're told to stand, say what you're told to say, and uh, C, make people happy, right? Be good at politics. And these are none of the things that interest me. So. I was having none of being an actor, but I thought it was a super fun way to, to pass time and I was good at it. So I began to work professionally. And then, um, so when I went to undergraduate school, I was studying for pre-law and I took an acting class as one of my general ed studies. And they recruited me because they were just starting a BFA program, a four-year BFA. And uh, I thought, all right, well, I'll go to your thing, like, that's fine. They said, oh, there's a little scholarship. And, you know, where I'm from, they give you like 1,500 bucks or whatever. Who cares? Like not money that's going to change your life. So I do the audition and then they're like, oh, we're going to give you a full tuition scholarship for the rest of your degree if you take your BFA. I was like, interesting. Who doesn't want a free degree, right? Uh, And I figured out I could take all of my pre-law on the side. So I did both. So I knew that I'd become a lawyer. I was also training to become a fresh professional actor. Every year they were cutting people out of the program like, you'll never be an actor. I was like, "Uh ah. Yes, I'll never be an actor, but I'm still here. Um, So they didn't cut me from the program. I finished my BFA. But during that process, I was taking these pre-law classes and I was going to all my acting studies, right? And the people in pre-law were like, how can you even speak to these people? They're such weirdos. And I thought, aha, that's it. And that's when I knew that it's my job to translate between art and commerce, because I can understand both the creative side and then the more practical business side.
0: That was Rosemead Hart, who joined us during season one of How I Got Greenlit. If you like this or any of our other episodes, please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on How I Got Greenlit on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Please reach out and email us at howigotgreenlit at gmail.com. You can also visit us in the vault at our website, howigotgreenlit.com. Now back to the show.
2: There's a weird adage that, that played out, it seems, for you and me and everybody, which is the more personal that your art is, the more specific and subjective it is, the more it tends to be universal. Yeah. Like If you try yeah. to say something that yeah. you think that you intellectualize people want to hear, you usually miss the mark. You when do. you are true and maybe even share some of your guilt or shame or fears about showing a less idealized version of yourself, especially yeah. in fiction, right? We, right. you know, maybe we have that one degree of, well, it's not me, it's the character, you know, you have to <laughs> guess which is true and which is fiction. But the more that you expose yourself in truth, uh, the more people seem to resonate uh, with you. Cause you it's, know, it's
3: authentic, the, you know, yeah. and it is, it's about then finding that connective tissue that binds us all together Mm-hmm. And celebrating kind of like the solidarity of the human experience, you know, rather than yeah. just like I want to blow a bunch of fucking cars up and have a bunch of chicks with their tits out, and you know, and well, entertaining That's, funny. That that's way. the
2: movie. That's the movie that Ryan and I are prepping.
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I, love that movie. I love
3: that movie. Can I? I want to come and blow something up.
2: <laughs> uh, uh, but. um yeah, I I think that that's the nail on the head of any artist. And what wh- you know, wh- what's fun about this show is it started from a film place. This was our COVID therapy session, by the way. Like yeah. that's where we started. Yeah. Um. And uh. And of course, it's all our friends are filmmakers. You know, it sort of logically just became this this thing. But we're starting to expand it beyond just filmic artists. You know, and what you see is there's a lot of commonalities to any creative process. To that's any. True. Any any person that maybe, I mean, I would call an artist somebody that just kind of stops for a second and question, like maybe looks up around the herd and is like, wait, why are we doing this? What is this? Why are we here? It's a questioning of just a status quo. And then it becomes a question of like, what's your media? And that could be your situation around you, or it could be that you have a you're drawn to some music over film over over dance or or whatever but it's all that it's an examination of your place in time at that moment right it's a snapshot of you and when it's good or when you're true it other people can
0: go yeah 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 Yeah.
2: i relate right
0: the lyrics the lyrics and the tunes are all different but the songs are all kind of the same
3: they are, uh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I uh, Studs
3: Terkel said this like this great quote. who said, "You have to have a lover's quarrel with the world. You know, like you have to love the world, but, right. you, but you
2: can't hate dissent. it. Maybe you have well, to you, dissent. Uh, you, um, you um you you expect more of it. Yeah, for me." Yeah, it's that, uh, the, the cynics are usually, and I know you, you have a cynical bent, we all three do. Cynics are usually the, uh, optimists that have their heart broken. And so the rest of it is just about like, why, why aren't you good? Why isn't the world better? Why aren't people doing better? You know, it's a lot of, a lot of artists share that sentiment and that's why we're drawing the films because they give us maybe a little break from the darkness or explain the darkness or contextualize the darkness, you know? Um, I think that's a pretty good origin story to me. I mean, it seems like uh film for you was a bonding with your father. Uh, did you go into In by a vacuum chemistry? of bonding
0: Yeah, <laughs> such that it was, um, it might've been your um, only connect. I mean, it sounds like it was kind of your real only connection to him that you could depend on. Or
2: that on he allowed that himself really, to have. Every yeah. Tuesday.
3: You know, we got to read, we got to duplicate that. Um, I guess it's fairly recently. It's not really recently. It's when Million Dollar Baby came out, you know, which is really—it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful film. I love that film, and it really—it's a—it's a love story. It's a father-daughter love story, right? Okay.
2: If
0: I'm going to take you on,
1: you won't never regret it.
0: You don't ask why. You don't say anything except maybe, yes, Frankie.
2: And I'm gonna to try to forget the fact that you're a girl.
3: So I went to go see it with some girlfriends, and I cried like crazy. And my father just happened to be visiting me, and I was like, "I need to get my father. I just bring him to the movie." So I did. I was like, "Pap, we should really see this movie together." And we did, and like we held hands the whole way through. Like it was a really, it was um, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment for us. It was, nice. and then he came to visit fucking finally and in Hollywood, you know, I live at the W right. So it's not exactly, it's, you know, so he comes to visit.
2: (laughs) He doesn't have to sleep on the couch. No,
3: (laughs) He comes and he's like, um, I'm like, Hey pop, what do you want to do? You want to like walk around and look at stars? You want to like, and he goes, I want to watch your movie. And I was like, (laughs) 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 like with me next to you. And he was like, yeah. So I was like, Oh my God. So I'm like, texting my friends i'm like why would i write this dialogue you know this like i fucked you 20 minutes after i after i met you i'd hardly ha- call that a hard sell And i'm like oh my god my fucking father's watching this but he took it like a champ and uh it opened the door to this beautiful conversation about the creative flow the creative process what i've come to learn is my father is a frustrated romantic He's a romantic and an artist who never had an outlet. Right. So, um, you know, and then I got to have this dinner with both him and my daughter, who was then in Sober Living, but she got to come and have dinner with us. And uh, my daughter's also like a beautiful writer and a creative soul. So I got to kind of see it
2: translated down the
3: line. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and uh, it was a really, it was a beautiful and very touching experience. So I do credit the medium of film with opening the door at least and providing that cohesion for us. I loved it. That's Yeah, great. I loved it.
2: And and did you pursue a more practical degree because that was uh, what he expected or what world the world expected? Like why? What was I didn't fucking okay, know what the
3: hell you mean. Back back up. You know, when I you were a kid,
2: like you leave that you're leaving the, the the family of origin. You're going yeah. to college. You know, you're obviously smart. You go to went to a good school. You got good grades. Pre med is not easy. Like you know, I didn't what, know
3: what I wanted to do. All my father told me was, you got to make money. Like he was like, he wasn't like, find the thing that you love. He was like, I don't give a fuck if you're cleaning toilets. Like I don't give a fuck what you're doing. Just fucking make money. And I was like, under like duly noted, understood.
2: And he's a Uh, Chinese American. Is he, but what, like who came over? What's the, what's the background of the family? My father
3: was really, he was brought up in war torn um, China during the Sino Japanese war. Like he has some horrific memories and they were basically like, you know, burned out of their village. Like he, he, yeah. he basically real like, childhood
2: trauma. Like for, at the, at for the, real.
3: Like his, at the it, end of
2: a fucking bayonet. Yes. Yeah.
3: Like my my grandfather apparently caught wind that the Japanese were coming for him, so he like mm-hmm. sold whatever he could. My father said he remembers the grandfather like sewing gold bars into the kids' clothing, and um, and which he was like, I hated it because it's so heavy. Um, and they got on a train and they went to Hong Kong. He says he remembers like seeing like bombs and shit go off. And, um, they got to Hong Kong, which was safe Harbor and then went to Taiwan from there. So, and there my father went to school, college, met my mom and they came over on a boat, um, fresh off the boat, uh, during the sixties and landed in New York and had me and my brother. So. do you speak? <laughs> I mean I, I can it's my mother tongue. It's the first language I ever heard, so there's yeah. a certain resonance to it. Yeah. And I think that if I went back to Taiwan, it would probably take me a, like a week or so to kind of like steep myself in like I can find I find myself I'm able to speak it fl- fairly fluidly if I'm steeped in it for a little bit. Yeah. So, like we love it as like my cousins and my friend Ron, my friend Ron, whose house I'm at actually is the man who played my dad as uh, in the movie. Oh, so we we became like homies. We're like family. Yeah, yeah. So, you t-
2: you said that, I remember you were talking about that. Yeah, that no, you, we're like good friends. He's of... like my
3: family. I mean, that's yeah. another beautiful outcome of filmmaking. Is like you make lifelong friends who then become yes. your family you meet your tribe. We've talked
0: about that. Well, you go through a,
2: a tough experience. It's a bonding thing, right? It is. It's a um, trauma
3: response. It's trauma trauma response. bonding.
0: It's like 100 people birthing a kid.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And
2: it, it, so it's fascinating uh again another layer of potential empathy because your father went through hell.
3: Yeah. He
2: did. You know, and saw real historical level trauma right yeah and and fled for his life right I mean we as like these fat lazy Americans we're so lucky yeah in our in our creature comforts yeah that we have time to have anxiety about internal issues a lot of people have anxiety about external threats right
3: yeah now this is far different than me being like I was traumatized because this boy didn't ask me to the prom or you know something like that
2: Right, right, or or when you strip it down to the studs, when the studs are strange men in college, right? So
3: yes,
2: um, it's it allows for that. Yeah, I mean my my great grandmother uh, fled the Armenian genocide. My great grandfather fled the potato famine. Yeah, so you know it's it's not a unique American experience to you know be within a few generations of goddamn genocides and. I mean uh, you could definitely characterize the, the 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 Sino-Japanese War as a genocide. I mean, yeah, the shit they for did sure. was just outrageous and for sure. We won't get into it, but kids look it up for fun and reading. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the Japanese you know, pre-World War 2 and into World War 2. When
3: my daughter fell into crisis, you know, I was I was lucky that we had resources to be able to get her really good help and they kept asking me what my childhood was like. And I was like, I'm not the fucking one here. Like, why are you fucking asking me questions? And they were like, it's this thing called it's epigenetics. all connected. Yes. They were like, and, you oh, know. They, they talked
2: about epigenetics. They
3: did. They did. They said, right. you know what? Like, your DNA doesn't, like, the sequence doesn't change. But the way it expresses shifts over generations. Over generations, of, especially the Armenians, right? Like, you guys got, like, I mean, Jiminy Christmas. That's, like, that's real shit. You know, and it's a, whole, it's a whole generation, right? So that, that then carries forward to, to the subsequent generations. And so it, it, it's part of your DNA. Like it's just part of our DNA. You know? Well,
2: as we learn more and more, yeah. So epigenetics is just the latest cool word for it. I mean, you know, uh, intergenerational was- trauma. Yeah, Carl Jung was hypothesizing yes. that the human race itself has human race memory yeah. in DNA. Yeah, collective con- and, unconscious, And right? that's why, yeah, the collective unconscious. or But even like, uh, uh, I think he was playing around with sort of, and this was all theoretical at his time, but uh, the notion of, uh, I mean, he called it race memory. Obviously, that's a problematic term, but yeah. uh, meaning... Um, that uh, it's why uh, a baby will retreat from a a snake or a spider or like the whole thing with to put the pickle on the, on the cat counter or whatever. Like those are examples of just inborn fears and sort of, and, 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 and for the good, right. Don't touch fire, whatever, whatever. But now we're into this kind of nuance of like, Oh, I have inborn anxiety because you know, both sides of my family fled, uh, yes. you know, actual, like real world threats. And so I'm always going to be a little on edge yeah. and a little We yeah,
3: hardwired then- for it. Like, we, you know, it's, it's right. hardwired into our systems, you know, partly for survival and, you mm-hmm. know, like, and, and, but it can, it, it can, it can bite you in the ass. So I think that, you know, I decided to get my master's of family therapy largely because, well, partly we were shut down and I was like, what the fuck else am I going to do? Um, but also cause Oh, look at you. You me. got a
2: degree.
0: We just started a stupid podcast.
2: I think <laughs> well, you win.
3: <laughs> Alex,
0: we, we should have used our time more wisely, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: not too
3: late, gents. It's not too late.
2: Yeah. So, but, but before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to talk about your greenlit moment. I want to talk about when you decided you were in your life, you were doing your thing. I think it was in the suburbs and you were like, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful husband. And you said, I got to make a movie. Like what, what, what was the process that brought you to making your own film?
3: Mental like, illness. No, uh, <laughs> I think, maybe. you know, I found myself in this, you know, I sold software for a while and then I, you know, kind of got lucky in, in virtual lotto in the valley and then i met a guy who got real lucky and not lucky but he was very skilled when you say
2: the valley you mean silicon silicon valley.
3: valley yeah yeah so i found myself in the situation where i was like i mean i had always just been working to survive so i was mm-hmm. like fuck man like i don't have to sling hash for a living anymore if i don't want to like what <laughs> what, do I, what am i gonna do so right. What do I want to do with my life? This nonprofit, because yeah. I was like watching television. I'm like grumbling about how fucked up our fucking education system was, and my little voice was like, if "You don't do something about it. You should keep your mouth shut." And you guys know me well enough now to know that I don't keep my mouth shut. So <laughs> I founded this nonprofit. <laughs> we, um, I founded this nonprofit. You know, we worked with um, at-risk middle school kids in these um, urban centers. So, and I remember going and and like pitching my very well healed neighbors to basically suck money from them. Right. Um, and they'd be like, all right, please just, sh- can you shut the fuck up about this kid? Like it's too painful. Just we'll write you the check, but just, like, just please shut up. Stop guilting us. So, um, and they would never come with me cause I'd be like, I'm going to go to Oakland. Would you like to come? And they'd be like, no. Um, eh. so I thought, wow, like the empathy is really bleeding out of our collective at a very alarming pace. And I thought, what can I fucking do to make people feel something? And I was like, when I was a kid, when I watched film and TV, it made me feel something. And and at that point, like, Modern Family was huge. And I really felt like Mitch and Cam coming into your living room every, every week moved the needle in terms of, you know, the adoption of, like, people being like, oh, it's okay for gay people to be married. So I thought, I'll make a movie like it just sort of dawned on me and of course my friends were like what are you fucking batshit out of your mind and i was like <laughs> yeah has that ever been in question like of course i am And they were like but this is <laughs> really crazy and like this is like you don't know what you're doing and i'm like yeah I okay, can figure it out I'm like i'm not coming into an or being like i'm gonna carve someone's brain up like you know i'll figure it out so right. um It's pretty hard. (laughs) It's a lot of moving pieces. It's a lot of phases. It's a lot. But I loved it. I loved it. And each, like we were saying, you trade in one set of issues or challenges for the next. And um, I just kept uh, kept saying, All right, let's keep going. All right, let's keep going. Okay, let's keep going. You know, I, I was like, Oh, maybe I could get someone to write the script for me. And I was like, fuck it, I'll write the script and then I was like oh maybe and I actually wanted Nikki. I was like maybe Nikki Cairo would direct this for me and then I was like fuck it I, I have a vision for it I'm going to direct it so each step of the way I just kept you know staring the fucking challenge down and having enough hubris and stupidity to just be like I'll just do it I'll just do it so um, I, did it. I did it for better or for worse <laughs> I got it done
0: This has been part one of our conversation with Angie Wong. Join us next week for part two, where we discuss Nikki Caro's 2002 film Whale Rider. For Alex Collegian, I'm Ryan Gibson. Thank you for listening this week. This has been How I Got Greenlit.
1: Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO.
0: Next Chapter Podcasts.